Welcome to Warren Community Fellowship. So glad to see each one of you this evening. All of you that are joining us online, welcome. We're so glad that you have tuned in. We're here to worship our God. You know, any time is a good time to praise God, but especially if we've had a bumpy day or times of maybe we're going through some tough times, those are especially the time that we want to lift up our voice and praise Him because as we praise Him, He works on our behalf and it allows Him to move and to answer prayer. And so I invite you to stand and let's praise and worship our King this evening. Let praise be a weapon that conquers all anxiety. Let it rise. Let praise arise. We sing your name in the dark and it changes everything. We sing with all we are and claim your victory. Let it rise. Let praise arise. Praise you. Oh, 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 o
yesterday, today, and forever. And we can trust in your promises and know that you care for us deeply. Creation longs to have the world. 
worship a thousand hallelujahs. We magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a joy it is to be in your presence. Thank you for all you've done for us, that you invite us into your presence to have a relationship with you. Thank you. As we've lifted our voices, we know that you are pleased with our praise and we worship you, our King. Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be finishing out this letter of Paul to the church of Corinth here in 1 Corinthians. Also, if you're watching online, we want to encourage you to go ahead and gather up uh, some bread and some juice or something that you'll be able to participate with us as we'll be celebrating communion uh, together at the end of our message here. Another thing that I want to remind you, and it's going to be uh, even pertinent for our, our study tonight, is we'll be taking a look at um, just this journey that, that Paul is going through and just the stuff that's going on. I want to encourage you, there is a documentary on uh, Amazon Prime, and it's called The Last Apostle. If you're considering on going on to the Seven Churches of Revelation trip with us, I encourage you watch that. It's a really good documentary on going through all of the different places that we're going to be seeing. Um, it was shot in 2020, so it's pretty pretty common. We'll be picking up here in, in Corinth, which would be one of the places that we'll be able to see that's there. And understanding just the culture that's going on. Corinth, Corinth is a church in an area where they've really kind of messed things up. They've, they, they started out well, but they've slid back. There's been some animosity, and Paul is writing what really is a second letter in dealing with some of the issues and the things that were going on in Corinth. They wrote to him and said, we're having some problems. Yeah, you are, because you've slid away. So Paul's giving them a letter of correction. And we last left off him dealing with a question, and throughout 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he's dealing with these questions that they write about. Well, what about this, and what about this? Well, the question that, he, that we started to address and went halfway through last week was the question concerning the bodily resurrection. Now, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek sarcasm because they, they had got to this place where these false teachers had come in and really kind of, well, we would say poo-poo the idea of a bodily resurrection, that there really isn't going to be a resurrection. And as we meditate on that thought, think about all the consequences that happens if there is no physical resurrection, we think about the fact that the resurrection is central to the gospel. And so Paul addressed that in verses 1 through 11. The promise of, the, uh, of eternal life, a, a real resurrection, is central to the gospel. If there's no bodily resurrection, then there really is no eternal life. And within this, he also moves on and, and asks the question point blank in verses 12 to 19, what if there is no resurrection? Well, then that would mean that Jesus never rose again. 
That would mean that if Jesus didn't rise again, if there is no bodily resurrection, then there was no true atonement for sin. That means that we would be stuck in our sins. And if there was no bodily resurrection, then that would mean that God is a liar. Well, when you think it all the way through, then what ends up happening with the essence of faith? Then, then the gospel that we preach is worthless. Now, there is a bodily resurrection, and, and within the resurrection of Jesus, verses 20 to 28, Paul declared that it was the death of Jesus and his resurrection that rendered death powerless. Now, that's powerful when you think about it. The very thing, the one thing that all mankind fears the most is the consequences of death and this eternal separation. Physical death, yes, but the eternal separation from God, eternal torment. And Jesus rendered it powerless for all those who were in Christ because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so because I am in Christ, because he rose, I will rise again too in that resurrection. And we think about that then if, and he gets a little snippety. Paul would do that from time to time. In verses 29 to 34, well, he would work out through all these different things. He says, well, then let's go ahead and let's be like, like Epicurus, who the slogan of the day was to eat, drink today, for tomorrow we die. In other words, that's the essence of this life. So all of those verses, all the way from 1 to 34, is all Paul confronting this, this theory this false doctrine, this false teaching that was going around that was trying to infect the church, to remove the resurrection, and it was a lie from the pit of hell. There is a real resurrection, a bodily resurrection, to be set free from all of these things. And so now Paul, in beginning with verse 35 to the rest of the chapter, is going to explain that resurrection. One of the things that I have the privilege of doing is being with people and family members that when they pass, the, those that are mourning, I get to bring to them hope. I get to bring them hope and encouragement. Why? Because they, they've lost their loved one. The loved one has become inanimate before them. They're, the body is there, but the spirit is departed. And there's always the question of, will I see them again? There's this void. And, you ha and, and it doesn't matter if you're believer or unbeliever. At that moment of grief, there's this reconciliation that you're working through of how deep your faith is and where is it going to take you. And how is it going to hold you. And if you're not a believer, then there's a great difficulty and great desperation because there is no hope. As Paul would write to the church of Thessalonica and First Thessalonians 4, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We do have a hope. And it's not hope in just hope, but it's a guaranteed assurance <clears throat> that we stand on that there is a real resurrection. So Paul anticipates their, their snarky question. In verse 35, he says, but someone will say, notice how he gets there, well then, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come in? So Paul wants to head this off. You've you got to understand, when Paul's writing this stuff, he's anticipating these questions. One of the great marks of, of the Pauline theology 
And being able to give somebody an answer is to anticipate the question that they're going to ask and, and address it before they have the opportunity to get any steam. And so what he does is he anticipates this question. Yes, there is a bodily resurrection. Okay, so you're right, Paul. Well, then how does the person rise again? What does this look like? And so he, Paul shifts from the discussion on the facts of the resurrection to the nature of the resurrected body. And, and, and so he, he gives these questions. How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come in? And Paul uses the analogy of creation or the seed model. And he's not, he's not dealing with this from like they seriously want to know. Have you ever met somebody like that where they ask questions but they really don't want to know? They're just asking questions to be snarky or to be argumentative within this. And so he, in verse 36, we know that Paul is, is speaking to them with a tongue-in-cheek or kind of sarcasm because he says, you fool. It's not like, oh, that was a good question. No, it's, you fool. Which tells you, Paul was right out there. And, and, and he says, that which you sow does not come to come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps, of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wishes, and to each of the seeds is a body of its own. All flesh is not the same, or not the same flesh. And there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another flesh of, of fish. And therefore are also heavenly bodies and all earthly bodies, but the glory of heaven is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. So there is one glory, the sun, another glory, the moon, another glory, the stars, and they differ from stars in glory. And so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown perishable body. It's raised imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown natural body. It's raised spiritual body. If there is a natural body, and there is, there is also a spiritual body. His conclusion in verse 44 is in a first-class conditional. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual But how did he get there? So what Paul does is he takes the listeners of this letter and he says, You fool. God's already given us a pattern of how he creates. And he creates in diversity. And he creates according to his will. So let's go back and let's take a look at the very creation itself. Because creation describes how that which is sown does not produce that which is sown. In other words, what is put into the ground comes out and it's different. Why? Well, because God determines it to be different. And, and there's this expectation. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you talk with people. And, and you know, I did the same thing growing up in the church and not really being a Christian and trying to figure out things. You know, I had this idea and I wasn't saved, but I knew about heaven. I knew about hell. I knew about God. And I knew about all this stuff. And I had in this mind... And it was like, you know what? I really don't care about heaven. I just want to go to hell and I want to party with my friends. And have you ever talked with people like that that have that perspective? I'm just going to, you know, hey, this is, if I can do this here, I'm going to go into hell and I, we're just going to party. You fool. But what are they a fool of? They're a fool in taking their, their anthropomorphism or their idea of what this human body is and transferring this, that which is physical into the spiritual. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because, because 
this corrupt, first of all, will have to put on incorruption. But you think about that. When does God call somebody a fool? In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one that does good. Paul uses this term, you fool. He didn't do it just as, as just because he wanted to call him a knucklehead. But he wanted to line them up and call them out as unbelievers. He says, you unbelievers. Why were they unbelievers? You're asking a question, but you don't even believe that there is a God. Because the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Therefore, you're a fool. Why? Because the very creation declares the glory of God. And so to see the declaration of God and to see the declaration of Jesus Christ in front of you and to deny that and then try to ask a spiritual question, oh, you're a fool. Because you're asking a question you don't even want to know the answer about. But, he's, but he goes on and he says, look, consider the analogy of the seed. It goes into the ground and produces life. But what goes into the ground is not what comes out. It changes. This metamorphosis into a different form. Now, who designed the seed and who designed what came out of the seed? And who designed the whole process where the seed would go in and, and the endoderm would, be, would come out and would grow. And it would grow from the seed itself. It would produce life. Who put that all together? God? And do you think that God has a problem in putting you back together? No. And if, if you go into the ground, are you going to come out the same way that you went in? Nope. I hope not. That would be bad. And so we want to understand that in what goes in is by God's design, earthly bodies. What comes out in the resurrection, the heavenly body, would be a body that is fit for heaven. This body is fit for earth. Temporal. Was contaminated by sin, therefore it started to die. But what has to happen is a whole new body. Not a remodel. This is not an extreme makeover that's going to happen. But it is a brand new body. First, or 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Third class condition, potential. If you potentially are in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. In other words, you will be brand new. You're not taking with you anything that you got. So don't worry about it. You need to understand that it's not made for eternity. And so God... Paul goes on and he says, look, at, let's take a look at the very creation that declares the plan and the glory of God. When he created the sea, did he not make the bodies that would go into the sea be able to live in the sea? Sure. The condition that was necessary for the fish to be able to exist there, he designed those bodies for that condition. And that for the terrestrial, that which is on earth. He designed the bodies that would walk on the earth and so forth. And the things that would live in the air, did he not create those that they would exist in that condition? So why would God do something different and, and not create something that was uniquely special 
to create in eternity to be created for the the heavens and in eternity. You know what's mind blowing about this? We have absolutely nothing to measure that by, except Jesus. Except Jesus. We can look at the angels, but the angels are a whole different category. But Jesus is the first fruit. You want to know what that body's going to be somewhat like? You take a look at Jesus post-resurrection. And that he wasn't bound by the things of this earth. And so within this, we know that this earthly body is sown. Or put into the ground, but raised. Sown in corruption, but raised incorrupt or perfect. And we, he goes on and talks about the flesh by nature is dishonorable but raised in glory. Do you realize that there is nothing in your human flesh that is honorable? It's not. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But within this, this new tent, this new dwelling place, this new body that we will have, everything about your flesh will be honorable unto God. Perfect. Within that. Raised to glory. This flesh as Paul would say, lives in weakness, but is raised in power. How do we know it's living in weakness? Well, talk to some of the older people. Every day you feel a little weaker, or you get sick, or these other things, but raised in power. This body, as Paul would say, is a natural, but it's raised in spiritual, or supernatural. I don't know anybody, after you look at this list, why would you want or even consider this? But the other side is, I can't take this with me, I don't want to take it with me. But why would God leave me as some floaty thing that is out there? He wouldn't. Because he didn't with Jesus. It was a physical, redeemed body that was there. And so within this, we are translated into the spiritual. Paul's point is this, because God is consistent. God is consistent in everything He does. If there is a natural body, and there is, then there will be a spiritual body. How do we know that? We consider Adam. Was Adam made a perfect human being? He was created in the image of God, created perfect. Until sin fell in. A physical body. With Eve. Physical body. Both perfect. Lacking nothing. Capable of procreation. Eating. Living. And all of these things. Until sin was found in them and corrupted everything in creation. In the end, what is God going to do? He's going to destroy heaven. He's going to destroy earth. And a new heaven and a new earth is all going to exist. Everything that was created, stars, everything, and mankind will be living as in the Adamic era within that new nature and the presence of God within this. It's the spiritual man that's going to live in a spiritual body. The spiritual man, only we only exist temporarily in this physical body. God has made us spiritual, but we live temporarily in this shell. Throughout Scripture, you will see 
analogies of taking this as if it was clothing and we're putting off as if it was clothing, putting off the perishable in order to clothe or put on the imperishable as if it was clothing. And, and so within this, we've got to understand that, that God's given us this pattern. In verses 45 to 49, Paul contrasts the, the first Adam to Jesus, which is important because of the theology that's in here. He said, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became, note, a life-giving spirit. That's important. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. Second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those that are earthly. And as is the heaven, so those are are heavenly. Just as we have been born in the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So Paul's second argument is this, is is the contrast between Adam and Jesus. Everyone born into Adam. Adam, when, when Adam was created, God breathed into him. The word is ruach. And he gave breath, the breath of life into Adam, formed him out of the dirt, and, and gave him breath. And all life comes from Adam. Adam was a life-giving force, person. Why? Because God empowered him to be life-giving. And so we can trace all life, human life, that is, all that life back to Adam, life-giving within that. So all living souls all start from natural man. You follow. But that natural man fell, and so therefore all natural man, all are born in this life-giving force, but they're born into sin or stillborn. They're dead. Even though they have life, they're animate, they're dead. But those that are born into Jesus, notice what he says. The last Adam, being Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Causing one to be born again is the life-giving spirit. Because everyone that is born into Adam is born spiritless. Without spirit. You have soul, but you don't have spirit. So you're born body and soul, but you're missing your spirit. The spirit is the, the connection that, that allows you to be connected to God. When you are born again, God gives you his spirit. Jesus is that life-giving spirit that allows us to be born again, that connects with God. That's why the natural man, when the natural man, the unregenerated man, body and soul, reads the scripture doesn't understand it. Why? Because Paul says that the natural man cannot discern spiritual things. Because he's lacking that component. But when you're born again and God breathes into you the life and gives you his spirit and you're born again, then you read the Bible and you go, oh, now I get it. What happened? What changed? The spirit of God is in you. And Jesus is the life-giving Spirit, He gives us that life. We are born in Him, within this. The first Adam is limited solely to earth. The second Adam, man is formed into the image of Jesus. 
you were born into the first image of, of Adam, an earthly, temporal being. But when you're born again, born into Jesus, you are, you are being formed into the image of Jesus. So picture in your mind, God made the dirt clod, and then Jesus came and he says, oh, you're not going to be a dirt clod anymore, I'm going to make you like Jesus. And I'm going to start reforming you, forming you into my son. Into his image. Which is a reversion. It takes us back to Imago Dei. No longer are we formed in sin and birthed through sin, but we are reformed into the image of Christ and being born again. The other thing that Paul clearly states is that natural man came first. Adam then came. We bury the, bear the image of that which we were born. There's a lot of people that are, that are walking around. In fact, every person that's walking on this earth is born once. But only those that have received the Spirit of God and are in Christ are born twice. Hence, born again. And it's that Spirit that, that and so within that, we're just occupying the space of this natural body until some time when we shed this natural body. And we receive from God the gift that He has afforded to us for a time. When is that going to happen? Look at verses 50 to 58. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, that's that clothing analogy, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul says, okay, I'm done arguing with you about this. I've laid it out clearly. But I anticipate another question. How long? How long? What is it going to be like? And, and really, speak clearly, Paul. And he says, okay, let me speak clearly. You ain't going to get there. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That you, I can't go to heaven like I am? No, you cannot. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Nor does this perishable and put on the imperishable. In other words, we have to be transformed. You want to go to heaven? You've got to be transformed. You've got to be changed. You've got to be born again. If you're not born again, you don't go to heaven. Period. Done. Well, then you're saying, I'm dead. Yes, you are dead. And if I don't get changed, then I don't get to go to heaven. No, you don't. Then what happens to me? Where did the dead go? The dead goes to the abode of the dead. You're dead, you'll remain dead. You'll shed the body, but you'll remain dead. You'll remain in the condition that you're in. So what does that mean? That means you better be scared. 
you, you got to understand, to be absent from the body for the believer is present with the Lord. But to be absent from the body as an unbeliever is to be cast out to outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are only two places. Well, you mean I don't get to go to purgatory? Somebody can't pray me out? Nope. You don't mean I, I, I don't get to go to the, 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 the party place in hell and hang out with my friends there? Nope. Outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You mean I'm going to feel pain? Yes. You will have a body that is fit for that condition to feel utter torment. Because as we studied last week, the dead will also rise and be cast out. Now we've got to understand that, that this transformation principle is fundamental. And it only comes through Christ. And it only comes through this change. Verse 51 to 53 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. That word mystery there is mysterion. It's not mystery like this, and we talked about it this morning. It's not this idea of mysterion. It's not the idea of some Eastern mysticism where you wave a magic wand and we don't know how this happens. The mystery is, a mysterion means it's something of God divine that we don't understand that was hidden from us because of our lack of knowledge or ability that God finally reveals to us. So Paul says this is a mystery, a thing that was once hidden but now revealed through Jesus Christ, how this whole thing happens. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, sleep is a euphemism for dying, but we will all be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet of God. So let's unpack that a little bit. The first thing he says is, this is a mystery, it was hidden but now revealed, and he says, pay attention, behold, wake up, you will not all sleep. Now, what does he mean by that? You're not all going to die. Paul believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The imminent return that he would come back and take the church to heaven. That he would return, just as he promised on the day of his session. Within that. But if he comes back and he wants to take me to heaven, then what has to happen? Well, flesh and blood can't inherit, so you have to be changed. You have to be changed. You have to be transformed within this. And so at Jesus' return, there will be some that will still be alive when he comes to take the church home. For the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we get to Revelation, we'll lay that whole thing out and it's called the rapture. There's a lot of people that, that have different positions on, on when that's going to take place. Some say it's going to happen before the tribulation. I'm one of them. Some say that it's going to happen mid-tribulation. I am not one of them, but I'm not going to not have pizza with the guys that do. Some people believe in what's called a pre-wrath position. Some people believe in, in, in post-trib. And I'll tell you, I can go through a whole litany of theology on why I, I hold to a pre-trib, pre-millennial position. Uh, but I would rather hold to this, to simplify it. I would rather be ready at any time for Jesus to come back and have him come back than be thinking, well, you know, I'm going to go through hell and then I'm going to see Jesus and have him come back and live with that dread and that fear of having to do that or have him come back and not be ready. 
If we live in the idea and the, the construct of the imminent return of Jesus, we will always be ready for him to come back. And, and from Paul's theology, Paul the, Pauline theology, he was a pre-tribber. He believed that we could come back, that Jesus would come back at any time. And, well, he got his words directly from Jesus, so I'm going to stick with him. He says, we're not all going to sleep or die, but we will all be changed. The word change there is a lasso. It's not metamorphosis. It's a lasso. And it means to be changed by nature. That, that, that change to something completely different. And he uses three phrases to describe how fast it'll be. He says, in a flash, a twinkling of an eye, and the last trumpet. Some people will say, well, you know what? I'm going to wait to accept the Lord, because if I accept Jesus right now, I can't, I can't, I can't do what I want to do. I'm going to wait. I'm going to look for the signs. I'm going to look for the Antichrist to come. I'm going to, look, I'm going to live. I want to live life. I want to enjoy it. I'm just going to wait. Or there's others that say, well, I'll just wait for my deathbed. And right before I die, then I'll accept the Lord. Question. Is that a really good plan? No. That's a horrible plan. And again, Paul holds to this position, and he says, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. So I thought, well, how fast is a twinkling of an eye? And what did I do? I googled it. The twinkling of an eye is the time it takes for the light to enter the eye, reach the back of the eye, and reflect back out. Light travels at 160,000 miles per second, and the twinkle of an eye is one billionth of a second. Question. If Jesus comes back in the twinkling of an eye, and he's taking the church out, and everybody that's left has to go through the tribulation, and you don't accept the Lord, do you think in one billionth of a second you're going to recognize anything? Why are you messing around? Obviously, Paul wanted to understand that it's an instantaneous transformation. Well, what is this last trumpet thing about? Again, in Western culture, we don't get it, but in Near Eastern culture, we would get it. Why? Trumpets were used to make announcements. Call people into those city walls to announce the enemy was coming, to announce the king was coming. All of the different things. The, the trumpets were, were the messaging system of the day. So the last trumpet would be the last trumpet. And the trumpet would announce the coming of the king. Or the announcing of the kingdom. Paul is referring to, and there's a number of last trumpets that are referred to in prophecy. One particular is in Joel chapter 2 verse 1. Where it says, blow a trumpet in Zion and the sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. I can tell you this, if you are sitting anywhere in Columbia County and you hear a trumpet sound, you better be looking up and getting ready, because you're about to flash out. Or, if you hear the trumpet and you don't go anywhere, ooh, that could be even worse. Be careful. And in that trumpet sound, he says this, And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Two parts. Two parts. First part. 
those that are saints that have died will be resurrected. The resurrection of the dead, they will be raised, what? Imperishable. In other words, that's when the saints who are already with the Lord receive their body. Then what happens to us? Then we are taken up and transformed. And this body will be changed, transformed. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. I referred to it earlier, but here's the whole passage. It says this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, or literally snatched away together with them in the clouds. To meet with the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The church of Thessalonica were bummed because they thought the Lord had come and they were left behind. They slept through the trumpet sound or something. I don't know. And Paul says, no, you didn't. Because when that trumpet blows, you're going to know. You're going to know. But we get a little bit more information in this. Now, there is a time when Jesus will come back for the church. He will not come and set his foot on the Mount of Olives. We will meet the Lord, as Thessalonians says, in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first, get their body. Those that, and, and he's bringing the souls with them back. And then those that are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, in the air, Thessalonians says. And so we will always be with the Lord. From that time forward. And that's, that's called the rapture. You will not find the word rapture in the Bible. But you will find this because it's a Latin word, rapturus. But it's a translation of caught up, which means to be violently snatched away or taken up. And so when we use the word rapture, we're really using a Latin word or it's an English transliteration of a Latin word that says that they were caught up in the air within this. And again, there's a lot of people who say, well, I don't believe that. Well, okay, go ahead. Lord bless you. I'm sticking with the I'm ready. I'm sticking with what the text says. I would rather be ready at any time to be able to be in that place and to have that victory. What is the purpose? The purpose is victory. Because what happens, he says, is this perishable will put on the imperishable. This mortal will put on immortality. You get your new body. He uses this analogy of the changing of clothes. He goes on and he says, and as we read, death is swallowed up. But it's the idea of this belief, believers are going to be changed out with this immortality. These bodies are worn out, like worn out clothes. They need to go away. And then we get the new garment, the tent, the dwelling place. And again, how do we use human temporal terms to describe the spiritual? Can we? Our language is so limited when it comes to spiritual things. Paul says when he was caught up in the third heaven, and it is strongly believed that Paul actually died, was taken to the third heaven, or the place, third heaven being the place where God dwells. Um, we have their atmosphere, solar sphere, and then there's the place beyond that. That would be the third. That when Paul saw these things, he said to try to write these things would be a sin to try to describe them. You can't do that. When John writes about the apocalypse of Jesus in the book of Revelation, the revealing, John was using words 
in first century language to try to describe something that was in the future that was indescribable for him. So he uses the word like an awful lot. When Paul talks about us putting, taking off the perishable, putting on the imperishable, and being changed, he's getting this straight from Jesus to the church. But again, these words pale in trying to describe the supernatural and the work that God does. So don't major on the minors. What is the big idea? What is the big picture? Jesus is coming back, and you're not going to be stuck in the body that you're in forever. That's good. But if Jesus comes back and you're not ready, you ain't getting no new body. And the new one that you would get, well, it's going to be a whole lot worse. And your future home, not a happy place. So we've got to understand that we have this future victory. The one thing that every human being has to deal with is death and eternal death. It is the one thing that everybody, the same enemy, common enemy, it doesn't matter if it's cancer or if it's lung disease or, or if it's car accident or tragedy, you can do to this body whatever you want to do, but when it comes to the eternal, it's the eternal death. Jesus would tell the disciples, don't fear those that can destroy the body. Fear the one that can destroy, take this body and the soul and cast it into hell. Hence, you will have a physical body to be able to feel all of that, to experience that, that utter destruction. Jesus died on the cross to experience all of the pain and the suffering of the cross and the wrath of God physically. If he did that physically to his own son in judgment of sin, what makes us think that we will not experience that much more physically in hellfire? So no, you will not be a disembodied soul in hell where you're just floating around and not feeling anything and just bummed out because you're in the dark. It would be the, it's going to be the worst torment that, that is beyond human understanding and imagination. But the opposite is true for life eternal. A body that will never feel pain, never suffer, never experience sorrow. And never die. In the physical and the eternal. Within this. Paul struggled with this concept of death. Romans 7, 24-25 says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? So then, in one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law, but the other, my flesh, the law of sin. I struggle. Why? Because he's stuck in this body. But then Paul quotes Isaiah and Hosea. Isaiah 50, or 25, 8. says, He swallows up death for a time, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all the faces, and He'll remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and out of Hosea thirteen fourteen, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I ransom them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. In other words, Jesus conquered death and all the suffering that went to it at the cross. 
and the grave. Not just the cross, and the grave. When we celebrate communion in a few moments, we have to wrap our head around the fact that we are memorializing something that has released us from all judgment. That's powerful within that. And so Paul is declaring victory. He says, oh, death, where is your, where, where is your victory? It's no longer there. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. These are rhetorical questions. And then we have victory through Christ Jesus. So what should our be our response? His final words. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. In other words, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't come up short. Press on. Be immovable. Chapter 16 is a conclusion to this letter. Where Paul concludes this letter with a couple things of business and some goodbyes. Some hellos, this is what's going on, we did it in the beginning. And now he's at the, the goodbye part of this letter. And bringing to uh, this matter of collections that was written to them. He says, now concerning collections, which was again a question that they had asked in a previous letter. Paul, we heard about some collections. Tell us more about what the collections are. When are you coming? What's going on with that? So in verses 1 through 4, he deals with this idea of collections. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. So we know this was a previous topic that was written to him to deal with. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Now, we don't see Paul or even the church talk an awful lot about money or tithing or any of these things that are there. And as a church, we don't practice a whole lot of preaching on that. But when the topic does come up, we want to address it. What is Paul dealing with here? Paul is dealing with what's called a benevolent offering. This was a special offering that, would, that Paul had determined needed to be taken up for the believers that were in Jerusalem that were being persecuted. By this time, the church was under heavy persecution. And we'll read about it in Acts. But there was such a persecution that the church was being dispersed out throughout Asia and throughout Turkey within that. And so Paul had gone through and he had planted the churches. Now, just to give you an idea, we're going to be going to Turkey in October. And, and again, I want to encourage you, if you can make the trip, please. But to give you an idea of what we're talking about, Jerusalem is right here. Now, what this would have looked like is Paul was up here in Antioch, up towards Assyria, and he would have gone an inland passage on this third missionary journey. He's already planted churches in this whole area. This whole area is Turkey that is in here. So, And this is Greece over here. Corinth is over here. So Paul was up here in Antioch, and he would have moved through Tarsus, which is here in Cilicia. Cappadocia and Caesarea was up in this area here. Um, so we go up and then through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia, and then Laodicea, Colossae, Hierapolis, the Church of Philadelphia, Church of Thyatira, Church of Pergam, 
Troas, Akasai, all the way down into Salamos. The Isle of Patmos is there, will be there. Miletus will be there. We're going to be traveling all throughout this area in October and down through Rhodes and through Patra. Then back here to Tyre. He'll land in Tyre and take the money there. So when we talk about him taking up, one of the things that he was going to do is he was going to make a trip all the way up into Macedonia, Thessalonica, Berea, up into Philippi, up into this area that's across here, and then drop down into Corinth. Corinth is right there. So he's writing the church to Corinth. He's writing from Ephesus, which is right here. And he says, when I make this trip, the letter's going to get there before me. He's writing from Ephesus. He'll make this trip. He'll come down to Corinth, and then he will backtrack all the way through and then eventually get the money over to Jerusalem. Does that give you a picture of, him, of why he's writing this and all of this? So what was happening, as I said, there were, the churches were struggling. In Romans chapter 15, verses 25 to 31, Paul writes about it. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For, and Rach, we can go ahead and actually after this, we can put that uh, map back up. Because I wanted to see the names when we read through it. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contribution for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted for them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I finish this and have put my seal on their fruits, I will go by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren... By our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me with your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea in my service in Jerusalem. And so what ends up happening is Paul is writing, and so as he's writing, he's, he's in Ephesus, but he's going to go up here, he's going to pick up the money in Corinth. He wants to bring it all the way back to Jerusalem, and then from here, he wants to go all the way over to Italy. Hence our trip, we're going to end up in Rome. Because we want to follow the, the steps of Paul that was there and to be able to, to see that. Now, this collection. This collection was a voluntary, one-time collection that he was gathering from the churches. Why? Because Paul believed, and he was rightfully believing this, that the promise of God was to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And so because the Gentiles had benefited from Judaism and the believers in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem that were there, that are now under persecution, he says, look, at you owe it to these brothers because you've spiritually been benefiting from the gospel that came through them. The other thing that Paul was trying to do was he was trying to break down the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. Imagine the Jews who culturally... Didn't like the Gentiles, but now they're Christians, all part of the same body. But you still have that bias. How do we undo the bias? Well, we take the Gentiles and they show love by supporting the Jews. Realizing that we're all part of the same body. Paul's very smart. He says, I want, I want you to understand that this is for their benefit. And this ministry opportunity. So how should they give? He said, first predetermine what you're going to give. 
Choose the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Because the first day of the week was the Lord's Day. It would be Sunday. Paul would not use the pagan term Sunday. Sunday is a pagan term. But he would say the first day of the week or the Lord's Day. So the first day of the week, every week, because they're agrarian and they would make their money during the week, they would take a portion, proportionate to their income. He didn't use the word tithe. You determine a portion, whatever that might be. And you set it aside and you hold on to it until I get there. It didn't go into a treasury. It stayed within the individuals. But they had to determine ahead of time. Why? Because Paul did not want them to have to give under constraint. One of the key principles in giving is the giving needs, needs to be between you and the Lord and not under constraint. One of the best practices you can do before you show up on, on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever your day is, whatever your Sabbath day is or whatever your predetermined day is that you're going to give, determine what you're going to give prior to the giving. And have it be proportionate. Does it have to be a tithe? If the Lord wants it to be a tithe, then give a tenth. That's a starting point. If you really wanted to be clear on how Jewish giving was, between all the offerings of the tithe and all of the offerings together, rounds up to about 32% of an income. But you've got to understand, that was their government too. So about 32% of an individual's income went into the storehouses of, of the temple, and that's what operated the society. Does it have to be a tenth? It's whatever the Lord puts on your heart. But determine it ahead of time. That's part of an act of worship. To be able to do that. And make it private. Notice he says, you do it and you keep it in your house. Don't tell anybody. Until I get there and I'll just gather it all up. Within that. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, each one, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, and the word is hilarious giver. If you can't laugh about it, then don't give it. Determine it in your heart. And not under constraint. You say, well, you know, within this, I, I, I oh, you know, it's so hard to write that check or whatever. Don't give it. You've got to give it out of joy. And, and you've got to give it in response. And give it systematically. Paul says this. The first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Give it systematically. Determine it systematically. Make it consistent. Giving should be, as he said, in keeping with your income. Not more, not less. But whatever you determine. Don't bankrupt yourself. Don't be guilted. When TV evangelists were a thing, it would always grind on me. Where you hear them beat up the, the you know, these ladies, these little old ladies that are watching the televangelists and saying, you give until it hurts, give until it bleeds. Give everything you got and then the Lord will provide for you. Hogwash. Give as the Lord puts it upon your heart. And give is a response of grace. And 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this For you know the grace of the Lord Christ, 
that through, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. What was his point with this group of people in Corinth and the churches in Galatia? You are grace-giving. What does that mean? Grace-giving means that you are giving in response to the grace that God has given to you. That's how it becomes hilarious. God, you, you saved me. And I get to bless somebody else. And so by the grace that I have received, the grace that I give. Privately, systematically, predetermined. Not letting your left hand know what the right's doing, but just to be able to do that. And let God direct those funds. Because the funds would come in, Paul would take them, and he would distribute them. But it's interesting because Paul would say, and I'm going to select some people from you, Corinth, to go. And I'm going to write letters of approval. And if it's okay with you, I'll go with them and I'll kind of pave the way so it'll be accepted within them. To be able to, to do that. Paul would eventually make that trip for himself in Romans, and you can read it later, 15, 25 to 33 would eventually make that trip. And it's described in Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 3 all the way to twenty-one seventeen. if you want to read about that trip. So he does get to make that trip with the resources and take it to the church of Jerusalem. And he gets to bridge that gap. Can you imagine the blessing that Paul would be with a, a group of people from Corinth, maybe Galatia, that are coming in and saying, these people that live all the way, way over there, have brought this for you. Oh, wait a minute. We do that now. Operation Christmas Child. All these people live way over there. They pack these boxes for you. We still see it happening today, don't we? With missionaries and the people we support. Paul finishes out with his travel plans and his goodbyes. He says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you even or spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. So he was, he says, for I do not wish to see you now, or I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. I love how he says that, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, which means it was springtime. As he's writing this letter in Ephesus and Pentecost, it's springtime. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to travel. It'll take me a while. When I get there, I'll spend winter with you. For a wide door and effective service is open to me. And there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you and without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as also I am. So Timothy would be a front man that would go and prepare the way for Paul. And so let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him to be with the brethren. One of the things that Paul was setting up was Timothy to eventually become the elder pastor in Ephesus and lead that church and restructure that church in Ephesus. And so we can see this partnership of, of Paul's disciple in the faith. Verse 12, concerning Apollos, our brother, I encourage him greatly to come to you. With the brethren, and it was not at all at his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on alert, stand firm in the faith, and act like men. Be strong, and let all that be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, and you know the household of Stephanus and 
They were the first fruits of Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the mystery of the saints, that you have been subjected to such men and to everyone who helps in the work of the labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, which Paul would say would be the fellowship that he was missing. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The church of Asia greet you. Achilla, Priscilla meet you heartily in the Lord with the church that's in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I thank God that we don't do that anymore. But it would be like our hug. And the greeting is in my own hand, which I'll touch on in a minute. And if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. How does Paul end this? Well, he gives his travel plans. He says, I'm going to go to Macedonia. I'm going to come through. I'm staying in Ephesus for a while to Pentecost at springtime. There's a great opportunity for me here. But I will get to you eventually, and then I'm going to stay with you, because I just don't want to pass through. I want to stay for a little bit. I'll stay the winter. If Timothy gets there, take care of his needs, but send him back here to Ephesus. i got work for him to do. And then Paul goes through and he unpacks some of these different things that, that he wanted to deal with. It's interesting he mentions Apollos. If you remember in the beginning of the letter, there was an argument about, I'm of Paul, I'm Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus, all of these things. He says, well, Apollos is going to come. He doesn't want to come right now, but he'll get there to be able to deal with some of the stuff that was going on. So they knew of Apollos. And then he gives them this exhortation. Be on your guard. Stand fast. Stand firm. Be men of courage and be strong. Paul leans into the Torah for this in Deuteronomy 31 6 it says be strong and courageous do not be afraid or tremble at them for the Lord your God is one who goes with you and he will not fail you or forsake you the words to Joshua from the Lord in Joshua 1 6 through 9 says be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them only be strong and very courageous be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from the right or the left so that you may have success wherever you go. The book of this law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you. And finally, Paul says, do everything in love. Why? Because the Corinthian church had become the loveless church. And they were no longer standing firm and they needed to stand firm. The world is pressing in, you guys. It's pressing in on us. And it is wanting to take us out of our feet. We need to be strong and we need to be courageous. But the most important thing is we need to do everything in love. If you don't remember anything else, understand this. Love covers a multitude of sins. It was for love's sake that God sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. It was for love's sake that you were redeemed. It is for love's sake that God's grace gift is given to you to have new life. It is for love's sake that God is giving you the opportunity for new life and resurrection. 
We're going to celebrate that gift even now with communion. As we come to this table, there's a couple of things I want to remind you of. One of which, this table is open to anyone who has accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. But if you haven't done that, this table has no meaning for you. It's an empty ritual. But for the believer, the bread reminds us of the body that was punished with a hellish kind of punishment so that we wouldn't have to experience that physical torment. The cup represents the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins that will be washed and made clean. In this world we will have tribulation, but we can be of good cheer because God's overcome the world. Jesus has overcome death. This table reminds us that we are living and will live. So when we come to this table, we come as children of the Most High. The other thing that might hinder you from coming is if you have unconfessed sin in your life, that you're not willing to give up. You've got to do business with God first and ask God, search me. Holy Spirit, look into my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Confess that sin, which means to say the same thing about that sin that God says about it. And then ask Him to forgive you. He will. But your heart's got to break over that sin. Because it's for those sins that Jesus died. It's why we take these things with all seriousness. The team's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a time of meditation and worship. Use this time for you, for you to be able to focus your heart, focus your mind on the things that, that will bring you before the throne of grace. And once that's happened, and once that's there, as the Lord puts it on your heart, then you can come up and take the elements for yourself. But hang on to them, because in the end, we're all going to take them together. And we'll enjoy them together as we think about this. Father, we thank you for this great, great sacrifice. We thank you for the redemption that is offered to us, and the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sins. As we come to this table, we ask, Holy Spirit, you would do that work in our hearts and prepare us to be able to celebrate this, this meal with you and with one another. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high. Hitting glory in creation, now revealed in you, the Christ. What a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. You didn't want heaven 
stand before God, just realize that we're standing before God's throne of grace. We didn't get there on our own merit. We're there because of what Jesus has done. He took our place, receiving the full wrath of His Father. The judgment for our sin. My sin. Think about that. And now you can stand before a holy God right now 
because of the righteousness of Jesus has been put upon you. We hold this bread, it reminds us of the physical body, the real body of Jesus that suffered, was crucified, killed, and buried. The real body that paid the penalty for our sin, and the real body that rose again. And Jesus said, as often as you do this, remember me. This is what keeps that memory alive. Sharing this meal together in memorial. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this bread and all that it remains. That it reminds us of, of what you did for us. We say thank you. Let's all take it together. As we consider the cup, Jesus had taken that third cup from the Passover meal. And he said, this cup, it represents the new covenant of my blood shed for you. And as often as you drink it, remember me. The blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's his blood that was shed. Sin requires a blood sacrifice. It requires death. There's life in the blood. We have new life. Through the blood of Christ. This grape juice reminds us of that. What can wash away my sin? Mm, nothing but the blood. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this cup and all that it reminds us of. We look forward to that day. When once again we will sit across the table from you. At the Lamb's Supper. And you will raise that glass. And around that table would be myriads upon myriads of people praising the name of Jesus, raising a glass also. And at that time, you will once again, as you said, drink of the fruit of the vine with your church. But till that day, we raise this glass to you. We remember you and we say thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all drink from the cup. Thank you, Lord. All of creation, all of the earth, make straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Shout of your fame, Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church 
evening. Let's uh, declare God's word together. Psalm 72 verses 18 and 19. Let's read this together. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders and blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And praise Jesus. We'll see you on Sunday. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.